I'm so glad that God is moving in the life of our church from everyone from the kids to literally providing water for people overseas. Can we just praise God for that for a moment? Today was the first time I saw that video. That was so cool. I'm getting all emotional up here. Well, I have to admit too, first time I saw that well, Tom, I saw Tom bring that in and put it over there and Tom's an engineer and works on robots. So I texted him and I said, that's a cool robot arm, man. And he said, it's a well. And I was like, oh, I should get more involved in that ministry. Oh my word. But God's doing cool stuff in our midst. If it's your first time at Livestream Church, a huge welcome to you wherever you're at. We'd love to meet you. If you come up afterwards, we would love to get to know you just a little bit. Well, it was an interesting week in the life of our church. About two weeks ago, we as a staff began praying and interceding for revival in our midst, in your lives, in our community. We've committed the last two Tuesdays, the beginning of our staff work week, to praying and interceding and asking that God would bring breakthrough and revival here in our midst. And I don't think the enemy has liked that because... We had a crazy week. Everything from storms and power outages here that caused tech problems to a lot of our staff getting knocked out with COVID, which is actually why I'm here preaching again this morning. I'm so excited to bring the word, but it's been a crazy and challenging week. So, City on a Hill, week number five. We're learning about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, possibly one of his most famous, most well-known messages that he preached. Week five out of six. Has anyone been with us so far every week of this series? Give me a shout. Give me a, hey, there we go. You guys are awesome. Hey, tell you what, if you've been here every week, you can go out into the lobby after the service and you can have a free cookie on me as your reward. <laughs> If you did miss any of the messages, let me just remind you, we have an awesome website. You can go to the sermon library there and catch up or rewatch anything. But it struck me as I was preparing for this message that we have spent five weeks preaching messages on one of Jesus' messages. Like, isn't that crazy? Five out of six weeks in and we're still preaching on only one of Jesus' messages and the truth is we could probably preach another five weeks because there's so much good stuff in this message that Jesus shared on the mountainside. But it got me thinking, how long was this message that Jesus preached? And I don't know in terms of like minutes or hours, but what I do know is that Jesus could preach and he could preach for a long time. Who knows that another time Jesus was teaching a crowd before him and maybe, I don't know, it had been going on for a while and the disciples come up to him and they're like, Jesus, um, hey, we can tell that you must have lost track of the countdown clock because the sun's starting to go down and everyone's hungry. It's past dinner time. In fact, the scripture says that at that point it was late in the day and the disciples say to Jesus, hey, uh, you should probably wrap this whole thing up. Send the people home so they can go get food. And Jesus says, I'm not done. I imagine he was like, I'm not even to my second point yet, guys. I'm just getting started and it got Pentecostal and you guys know what happened next. He said, you give them something to eat. I'm gonna keep preaching. And they're like, how do we, what? How do we do that? And then you all know what came next, the incredible miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. But what strikes me in that moment is as Jesus is preaching crowds before him, 
The people were starving, they were hungry, and yet there was something about Jesus' words that so compelled them that even though they were hungry, they just couldn't leave. I know that my stomach is rumbling, but I just can't miss the next word that's gonna come out of Jesus' mouth. And I'm not even preaching on the feeding of the 5,000 today, but I just think you gotta get this before we get started. These people were more hungry for a word from God than they were for their own next meal. And I just wonder what would happen if we came to church with that same level of expectation. What would happen if we came so hungry for God's word that we said, we're not leaving the 10.30 a.m. service until we meet with Jesus. We're not walking out until we've had an encounter with the presence of the living God. I tell you guys, we're not gonna see revival in our church or in West Michigan until we begin to become more hungry for the presence of God than we even are for our physical needs than we even are for our next meal. So I just wonder as we start this morning, what are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? Why'd you come to church today? Why are you joined in online in this moment? Is it because it's what you do? You've done it your whole life? It's Sunday morning. I go to church. Is it because it's part of the routine? Is it because it's how you were raised? Is it because your parents made you come along? If so, here's what you're gonna get out of this service you're gonna get a note page full of notes of another three-point message that you're honestly probably gonna forget about by Friday. But if you came hungry for an encounter with Jesus, the living God, I promise you, you will not walk out of this place without an encounter with his presence. So I just wanna pray over us, and I wonder, anybody come hungry this morning? Anybody come hungry for an encounter with Jesus? If so, why don't you bow your heads with me a moment? I just want to begin this message in prayer. Lord Jesus, we want you. We thank you, God, that before you left this earth, Jesus, you said you're going to send your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I know that you're here. I ask that you would touch people right now as I preach this, Lord. Would you make the words of your Bible, would you make them come alive and hit people exactly where they need it? Would people feel your presence in a way that maybe they haven't in years and years? We're hungry for you, Jesus. We know that you're faithful. Would you meet us right now? And in Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Well, City on a Hill, it's like I said, it's our fifth week. We've gone through chapters five and six in the first four weeks of this series, and we find ourselves now, Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse 13 to 27. It's the end of the sermon. Now, if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you, now's the moment, open it up, Matthew 7. If you're in the room and you need a Bible, there are stacks of Bibles back by the doors and in the loft. Go get one right now if you need one, and if you don't have your own, you can actually keep it. It's our gift to you. If you're really paying attention, you might have realized that we skipped the first 12 verses of Matthew 7. I'm jumping in this morning right to verse 13, and you might go, why is that? Well, Pastor Jim is part of the staff who got sick this week, and he was supposed to preach verses 1 to 12. As I was preparing for the message, he told me on Thursday night I was preaching, and he said, hey, you can preach that message, verses 1 to 12, on judging, or just pray, see what the Lord lays on your heart. And he sent me his message notes, and I was going through his message notes, and it's honestly really good stuff. You guys should come next week and hear it. But it struck me, Pastor Jim's the one to preach this message, not me. And a lot of what the Lord was laying on my heart actually fell within the last verses, 13 to 27. 
And so I texted Pastor Jim and I said, hey, I know this is weird. I know it doesn't make any sense. I know it probably goes against everything they teach you in Bible college, but what if I preached the end and the next week you followed it up with those verses? And Pastor Jim texted me back. You know what he said? He said, that's what the Lord spoke to me. But I didn't want to tell you. I wanted to see if he'd speak the same thing to you. So, I don't know about you, but I'm filled with an anticipation today, filled with expectation that God wants to do something in this service. As we look back over the last four weeks of City on a Hill, Jesus' message, the Sermon on the Mount, what would you say the main theme of Jesus' message is? What would you say is his one topic? It's a bit of a loaded question because Jesus preaches on a whole range of topics in this one message. As we read through, from a surface reading at least, it almost feels like theological whiplash. Jesus starts out and he's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you might say, oh, it's a message on poverty or maybe contentment. But then he says, you're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And you're like, okay, evangelism. And then he changes gears again. You've heard it said, don't murder. And you're like, uh, murder or morality? Jesus, where are you going? And then he says, when you fast, don't disfigure your faces. Anybody remember last week's message? I'm so scared somebody's gonna go back in the sermon library and screenshot that part. Please don't do that. But you're like, maybe it's on fasting. Where are you going with this message, Jesus? What are you talking about? I started to think, if Jesus had a title for the Sermon on the Mount, what would it be? And you're like, it's the Sermon on the Mount, duh. But that's actually a title that we gave to Jesus' message. It's actually really arbitrary. It's a location. Jesus was on a mountainside preaching a sermon, Sermon on the Mount, right? It's pretty easy. It would be like once this message get posted, gets posted, if they labeled it the message at Livestream, you'd be like, not actually very helpful, right? But what would Jesus have titled his message, the Sermon on the Mount? So, I skimmed through some of the topics in Jesus' sermon, and I took the liberty of writing three potential titles for Jesus. Do you want to hear them? Here's the first one. Holiness and hypocrisy. Got that alliteration going, right? Pretty catchy. Here's the second one. Salty and lit. Relevant, right? Connect with Gen Z. How about, I like this one. This is my favorite. The skinny on fasting. Little play on words, right? But if Jesus were to title this, what would he call it? Because up close, at least, it, the Sermon on the Mount looks like just a bunch of jumbled topics all smashed together into one sermon, almost like Jesus just had too much on his mind. But as we take a step back, what I hope you see this morning is that the Sermon on the Mount is a masterfully crafted piece of communication that has a unifying theme woven all throughout the different topics and a convicting conclusion that ties it all together. What's that theme? I'm going to suggest that it's authentic faith. If Jesus were to give a title to this message, he could have called it authentic faith. Can we zoom out a minute and I'll show you what I mean? When Jesus preaches this message, it's on the beginning end of his ministry. In fact, he'd just begun going throughout Galilee, teaching and healing, and the word's starting to get out. There's a new guy on the scene. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 25, this is right before Jesus begins preaching the message. The scripture says that large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. There's a huge crowd now following Jesus. And the question is, who is this man? And what's he all about? 
As it turns out, what Jesus is all about is bringing his father's kingdom. He left heaven. He's bringing it to earth. And he wants people to know about this kingdom of heaven. What it means to really be part of the kingdom. What it means to really have authentic faith. And so Jesus starts out his message in Matthew 5, verse 3. And his first words of the Sermon on the Mount are these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, help me out, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you're sitting there listening to Jesus, hearing about this kingdom of heaven, here's what you're thinking. Okay, so the poor are in and the persecuted are in. Now, when I think about a heavenly kingdom, I don't think about the poor, impoverished people and the persecuted people. I think about the well-off people. I think about royalty. But like the poor and the persecuted are in. Okay, okay, we got it, Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 20 and he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter what? The kingdom of heaven. Now this is confusing. So the poor people get in, the persecuted people get in, but the religious leaders missed it? How did that happen? And as Jesus continues, you'll hear him unpack, when you pray, don't be like the religious leaders who do it just for the show. Instead, pray in quiet to your heavenly father. When you fast, don't be like the religious leaders who show everyone that they're fasting. Instead, don't let anyone know. Do it just for your father and you begin to realize that the reason the religious leaders missed out on the kingdom of heaven is because they're not actually interested in worshiping God. They're interested in gaining the approval of others. So the poor people are in, the persecuted people are in, they have authentic faith and the religious leaders are out. And they might have been asking the question, how do we then get into the kingdom of heaven? How do we have this authentic faith if even our religious leaders don't have it? And this is where we pick up the message. Matthew 7, verse 13. This is Jesus' answer to that question. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. Jesus says, you want to have authentic faith? You want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? Here's how you do it. Enter through the narrow gate. And you might be asking, what is the narrow gate? Like, what is he talking about here? What is this narrow door? What's the narrow road? And the truth is, as Jesus is encouraging them to enter through the narrow gate, he's talking about himself. He's saying, come to salvation through me, Jesus, although they didn't yet know he was the Messiah. What is the gate? The gate, the, the entry point to salvation, the entryway to authentic faith is believing in Jesus, the one who came from heaven to the earth he created where his own creation rejected him. Though he died for them anyways so that their sin could be buried beneath the earth, yet he rose again to, to, so that those who believe in him might have eternal life and have their sins washed white as snow. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. In fact, in John 10 later, he says it super explicitly. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. The gate is narrow. The road is small. And then we get to these words that are honestly a bit disturbing if you care about people in their eternity. 
not many will find it. I don't know about you, but that gets my heart pumping. I want people to know Jesus. Why? Why won't many people enter through the narrow gate? Because it's harder. At the most basic level, following Jesus is not an easy call. Some of you might think, oh, I'll follow Jesus, my life will get better and easier, and it certainly does get better as you begin to walk with your Savior, but it doesn't get easier. In fact, oftentimes it gets harder. The call to follow Jesus is a call to crucify your old life. You can't live that way anymore. When Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler, he says, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. Like, sell your house, cash out your 401k, sell the truck, and come follow me. That's a radical call. And the scripture says that the rich young ruler walks away sad because he couldn't do it. He was too attached to his worldly possessions. And I don't think every one of you, you're supposed to go sell your house after this service. Although each of us are going to have to give up something in order to follow Jesus, aren't we? Jesus speaks to the woman caught in the act of adultery, and he says, hey, leave your life of sin. Do you know that when you enter onto the narrow road through the narrow gate that is Jesus, you have to leave behind your life of sin? You can't continue in those habits and those destructive patterns of life that you've gone in for so long. You see, following Jesus is hard. It's much easier to just fit in with the crowd and not be persecuted. It's much easier to live a life of comfort, to accumulate possessions, to live out the American dream. It's much easier to continue in your sinful habits. And so Jesus says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. You see, it's much easier to be on that road. It's much easier to be on the broad road How many of you like road trips? I love road trips. Okay, here's another question. How many of you like driving on the highway? Okay, a few of you, my need for speeders, that's right. So whenever we go on a road trip, I cannot wait to get to that first highway entrance ramp. I can't wait to get off the road and to get onto the highway, why? Because as soon as you get on the highway, the speed limit goes way up. Not only that, but there's no stop signs. There's no red lights. There's more lanes on the highway, which means less traffic. And overall, it's just a lot easier to drive on the highway. Like, I wish I could just take the highway all the way from point A to point B. No messing around, straight to the destination. I would love that. And yet there's a reality. When you're on a road trip, there inevitably comes a point where you have to take an exit ramp. You can't stay on the highway. And as soon as you take the exit ramp, you get on to a smaller road. You might go from five lanes to one lane. The speed limit might go from 70 to 35. All of a sudden, there's stop signs and red lights, and if you're not stuck at those, you're stuck behind a tractor or stuck behind a train at some railroad crossing, right? And you're like, come on! Do you know what else you realize when you get off the highway? Just how many sets of golden arches and Starbucks there are. It's like everywhere you look, there's distractions. And if you're married and you've got your wife in the car with you, how many Targets there are? Target and Starbucks is a deadly combination. And some of the guys are like, amen, question mark, right? But there's so many distractions. When you're driving on the smaller road, you look to the left and the right, and everything is trying to pull you off the path. Everything is trying to get your attention and divert your course off of the smaller road. 
I think that's what it's like when you start following Jesus. Smooth sailing. It's easy when you're just living for yourself. But the moment you start to follow Jesus, all of a sudden all these obstacles get, start getting thrown in your path and you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? All of a sudden the enemy starts to plague you with temptation to try and take your eyes off Jesus. All of a sudden you might be assailed with spiritual warfare. In fact, I know Christians who say, I never even knew about spiritual warfare until I really started following Jesus. But not on the highway on the broad road that leads to destruction. You're just cruising. There's no problems. In fact, why would the enemy give you problems when you're on the highway to hell, right? There's a reason they named that song what it is. He's not gonna try and distract you. He wants you to just keep going. And yet, there comes a point in your life where you have to look at the road you're on and decide, I'm gonna take an exit ramp. I'm, I'm getting off this road. I'm leaving behind those sinful desires. I'm leaving behind my pursuit of earthly things. I wanna follow Jesus. You gotta leave those things behind. And if you want to get on the narrow road that leads to life, here's how you do it. You enter through the narrow gate. What does that look like for you this morning if you've never met Jesus before? It looks like praying a simple prayer, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I give you my life. Would you come into my heart? Be the Lord of my life. I want to follow you. And then you'll be set on this small road of transformation that leads to our Savior. Next thing is you can get baptized. You can literally get baptized tonight. We're going to Lake Michigan tonight and you can get baptized symbolizing I'm going under the water like Jesus went under the earth and I'm leaving my sinful life behind and I'm coming up made new. And if you want to give your life to Jesus today, do it right now, don't wait. If you want to get baptized, come talk to us afterwards. So Jesus says, you want to enter in the kingdom of heaven? You want to have authentic faith? Enter through the narrow gate. Here's the second thing I think he says is follow the fruit. What does that mean? Verse 15, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. Will you help me out and say this? By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here we go again. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Who's Jesus talking about here? He starts out and he says, watch out for false prophets. He's definitely talking about false prophets, those who intend to lead you off the path. But I think he's also referring back to a group that he's spoken of all throughout this message. It's the religious leaders. He says, they're like wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're counterfeits. In fact, they even perform religious rituals, but their fruit isn't good. Their prayer is sour because they do it just for attention. And Jesus says, when they come into judgment, they're going to say, Lord, look at all these things we did for you. And Jesus is going to say, but I never, what? Knew you. 
You can do things for God without being in relationship with God. Did you know that? And Jesus says it's a counterfeit. I remember um, earlier this year, I was standing on the stage Sunday night, and it was uh, Identity Youth. I was preaching a message, and it was called The Real Thing. If you're a youth student in this room, you might remember it. I started the message, I pulled out my wallet, and I opened it up, and I pulled out a $20 bill. I'm sorry, I don't have any 20s on me right now. Don't get too excited. And I held it up, and I said, hey, who wants this $20 bill come up to the stage? And of course, because they're high schoolers, they rushed up to the stage. And then I made them jump through all these crazy hoops and do all these embarrassing things to get the $20. First off, I made them spin in a bunch of circles till they were dizzy. Then we put on the music and we made them do the chicken dance in front of all their peers and humiliated them. It's the joys of being a youth pastor. Then, last but not least, we brought up a table and put on the song The Eye of the Tiger and we made them all arm wrestle until there was only one champion and that person got the $20. It was awesome. And when that student won, I handed him the $20 and I said, thank you, give it up for him, go back to your seat. And then as soon as he sat down in his seat, I let him in on a little secret that he didn't know. I told him, you know, you just got that $20 and it looks real, but this week I went on Amazon and for $6, I bought a whole stack of fake $20 bills. Do you guys even know you could do that? Shouldn't that be illegal? I said, before youth started, I went into the tech booth, I opened up those fake 20s, I set them in the tech booth, and I took the top one off and I put it in my wallet. I was preparing for this message. I said, that $20 bill you have is fake. And I said, isn't that just like life? You can go throughout life striving and doing all of these things, but unless you know Jesus, it's all for nothing. It's a counterfeit. And I actually felt so bad afterwards that I actually did trade him and give him a real $20 bill. The tech team came up to me after worship rehearsal. It was really funny. I forgot that I had left the stack of 20s in the tech booth. Praise God for our incredible tech team and their integrity. They came up to me after worship rehearsal. Whole time, imagine, they're clicking their slides and there's a stack of money right there. And they're like, what's going on? Is this like a drug deal? Did somebody win the lottery? And they came over and they're like, Chandler, I don't know what this is, but you got to take care of this. (laughs) Praise God for our tech team. But Jesus says, it's a counterfeit. You'll know them by their fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. Let's bring it back to authentic faith. How do I know that I have authentic faith? How do I know that I'm entering the kingdom of heaven? Here's a good proof. Your life is producing good fruit. If you are a good tree, you cannot produce bad fruit. If you are growing in the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, if you are operating in spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit, you know what? That's a good proof that you are probably following God, that you probably have authentic faith. It's not the cause of your salvation, but it can be an evidence of it. Similar question, how do I know which spiritual leaders I should follow? I mean, it seems like pastors are just dropping left and right like like flies. Judge them by their fruit. Follow the ones who demonstrate consistently good fruit with their lives. So how do I have authentic faith? How do I enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Follow the fruit and finally build on the solid foundation. Jesus concludes his message with a story that many of you might be familiar with. It's the parable of the builders. You might not even have read it, but lately in church, we've been singing this song, and I love it. It's called Firm Foundation. The bridge of the song. Rain came and wind blew, but my house was built on you. 
and I'm safe with you. I'm gonna make it through. How many of you have heard that song? You didn't realize we we're really sneaky. We're teaching you the Bible through the music. It's the, it's the parable of the builders. And Jesus says in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, I grew up in church, so I've heard that story most of my life, and for some reason, I never put it together until this week. That the place that story holds in Scripture is at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Why does Jesus choose to conclude his most well-known message with a parable, with with this story of the builders? He starts out and he says, Therefore, if you hear my words, whenever you see therefore in Scripture, you have to ask, what is that therefore, therefore? He says, if you hear my words, what words? He's talking about the sermon he's literally preaching to them. If you heard these words that I preached in the Sermon on the Mount and you walk out of this place, if you walk off this mountain and you put them in practice, you know what? That makes you wise. It's like you're building on a firm foundation. But if you walk out, if you walk off this mountain, walk out of this moment and you don't put these words into practice, you're like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the same is true today. If you walk out of this church service and your life looks exactly the same, James would say, it's like looking in a mirror and forgetting what you look like. It's useless. He says, don't do that. Jesus says, be like the man who builds his life on the solid foundation. They would have understood this. Jesus is preaching in Galilee, the Sea of Galilee right there. In Galilee, they have this specific type of sand, and in the summer, when the sun is strongest, it hardens. It appears to be a firm foundation, but it's not. A builder would never build their house on that sand because they know as soon as the summer passes and the months get cooler and the rainy season comes, that sand is going to wash out and the foundation is going to become unstable. So what they would literally do is they would dig down through the sand, sometimes down 10 feet until they reached bedrock, and they would build their house on the rock. And what struck me as I was studying this this week, why does Jesus conclude his message with this parable? What struck me is that from the outside, From the exterior, both of these houses look the same. I mean, the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock, they both got walls, they both got a roof, they both have doors. And it might be that when you look at Jesus, who is this man, and you look at the religious leaders, at least from the exterior, they kind of look the same. They're both Jews. They're both teachers of the law. They both have disciples. They both are rabbis, right? They're both religious leaders. And it's not until you dig deeper and look at their foundation that you begin to see the difference. Jesus' life and ministry is rooted on only doing and saying what he hears from the Father. He lives and ministers only for the affection and the approval of his Father in heaven. Yet the religious leaders... Their ministry is based on gaining the approval and attention of others. And Jesus says, you have a choice at the end of this message. You can follow me. That'll be like building a firm foundation. 
or you can follow the religious leaders, but let me tell you, the foundation's gonna wash away. It's not a firm foundation. So why doesn't everyone just build their life on the rock? I wanna end with this, because I think some of you really need to hear it this morning. Why doesn't everyone, it's obviously the wise thing to do, doesn't take a college degree to realize that. I think it's because it takes more work. To, to get to the bedrock, you have to actually dig. And that's hard. It's easier. If you're in this moment and you're a young person, it's way easier just to continue to live under the umbrella of your parents' faith like you may have for your whole life and not dig into the word and dig into prayer on your own and get to know Jesus for yourself. But do you know what's gonna happen if you do that? You're gonna get to college someday and there's going to be some professor who starts citing all of these scientific facts and convincing you that Jesus did not exist and God is not real and all of a sudden your foundation is going to wash away because it was never really set on a personal relationship with Jesus. You might be in this room and you've gone to church your whole life. Can I tell you, it's way easier just to attend a service than to walk in true relationship with God day in and day out. It's way easier to come on a Sunday morning than to wake up early and meet with God tomorrow morning on a Monday. But what'll happen if you just check the religious box, showed up to another service? I promise you there will come a day, if it hasn't already, where life is gonna knock you in the gut, knock the wind out of your sails, and you are gonna be left rocked and shattered if there's no personal relationship with Jesus, your foundation will crumble in that moment because you don't know the sustainer of life that is Jesus. But when you build your life on Jesus, friend, when you build your life on Jesus, you can encounter a terrible financial setback. And you can walk into that moment like Paul did in the New Testament, saying, I know what it's like to be rich, and now I know what it's like to be poor. And I tell you what, I'm content in both. Like, give me the prison or give me the palace. It's all good. I got Jesus. When your foundation is on the bedrock that is Jesus, you can get hit with a situation to which there's no answers. God, I don't know why. And you can stand in that moment and say, I might not know the answers, but I know the one who does in my trust is in him. When your foundation is built on Jesus, you can even have sickness in your body. It might even be terminal. And even if it leads to death, you can rejoice because you know that the best is still ahead of you. You don't have to fear when you're at death's door. Why? Because this is just the beginning of life with my Savior because my foundation is not built on this world. My foundation is built on the eternal King Jesus. This week, I helped participate and serve in two different funerals. Two funerals in one week. And it struck me as I watched both of these funerals, both of the people who had passed away were believers. They loved the Lord for a long time throughout their life. It struck me as I watched the families of the deceased and they mourned appropriately, but they also rejoiced. They celebrated in the presence of death and I thought, who does that? The world certainly doesn't do that. When someone passes away, their life is rocked. They don't know how to handle it. Oftentimes they turn to coping mechanisms to try and figure it out. Alcohol or drugs or just going and working a lot more. Try, like, I don't know what to do with this. And yet, 
because their foundation was in Jesus, they were able to rejoice saying, I know I will see my loved one again someday. When you build your life on Jesus, friend, nothing can shake you. And I love how this, I love the bow, the bow that's wrapped on all of this. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. That word is translated power. You have power in Jesus and not as their teachers of the law. How do I have authentic faith? Enter through the narrow gate. Leave behind your old ways and stay on the narrow road that leads to life. How do I have authentic faith? Follow the fruit. Your life should be displaying fruit so that those around you see it and turn to Jesus themselves. How do I have authentic faith? Build your life, friend, on the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ and you will never be shaken, amen? Amen. Why don't we stand and I'd love to just pray over you as we conclude. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna go into one last song of worship. Would you bow your heads? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning and we trust God that it's not just another service Lord we're done going through the motions God I'm praying that people in this morning have encountered your presence in a way that they'll walk out never being the same because they met with the living God Lord I pray over the people under the sound of my voice I just ask Lord that when storms of life hit that their life would not be shaken because they're built on the firm foundation that is you Jesus I pray, God, for an outpouring of spiritual gifts in our midst. Fruit, God, that other people would see, that they would taste and see how sweet and how good you are, Lord. I pray for the fruits of the Spirit, that there would be marriages in this room that are transformed because one partner all of a sudden learns what it is to be patient and to serve. And Lord, that spouses would come to Jesus. I pray, God, that by our fruit we would turn the world around. And Lord, I pray for those who need to come to you, that they would enter through the narrow gate this morning. I pray for those who are tempted to turn to the left or right. Lord Jesus, help them to fix their eyes on you, the author and the finisher of their faith. We put our trust in you, Jesus. We love you. And in Jesus' mighty, powerful, and awesome name, everyone shout it out. Amen.